Good morning, Grace Church. Good to be with you all. It has been a delight to join with your church family in this conference this past weekend. I just want to tell you, I have been so impressed with this flock and the way you love each other, you serve, and the, the youth have been very impressive to me. They have not fulfilled the stereotype of their generation in their attentiveness and their engagement and their hunger to learn that's been evident. It's been a delight to teach these young people here this weekend as well as the others who are here. I'm grateful for the opportunity. We've been talking about Isaiah chapter 6, this passage where Isaiah sees God like he's never seen before. And this is a man who knows God deeply, but there was plenty of room for him to grow. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he hears the angelic host singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they, they are praising God in a way that Isaiah has his elevated view of God elevated even more. And he sees himself for who he is. He sees his sin more deeply than he ever had before. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he's undone before God. And then he is dependent on God to do something about his sin. And God does it in his kind, merciful, gracious provision of the coal from the altar, this purifying coal that touches his lips and cleanses him and brings atonement, restored relationship with God. And then and only then is he able to answer God's call when he says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And now he's ready not just to have a relationship with God, but to serve God, to minister before him. And that's what we looked at this past weekend. I, I want this morning to look at, in some ways, a beautiful way of encapsulating what we've talked about in the context of the community of God's people in Hebrews chapter 12. I come before you this morning as not just a theology professor at Biola University and the one of the pastors at Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada, but I come as a disciple of Jesus right along with every one of you walking this journey of following Christ, which increasingly is taking on challenges in our day that I've never seen before in my lifetime. And I come not just as a disciple, but as a husband and a father. Do we have a photograph of my family so I'm more than a talking head to all of you? Do we have that? That's my family. That's my wife of 32 years, Donna. She is smart and funny and wise and good and patient and kind and beautifully compassionate. She's one of the most emotionally intelligent women I've ever met in my life. She cries when you're supposed to cry. She has righteous indignation when you're supposed to. She never apologizes for crying because sometimes she'll just be upset everyone else isn't crying. You know how we're embarrassed by crying? Not my wife. She, she has a beautifully tender heart. And then my daughter Caroline on your left is 20 and a natural born leader. My daughter Paige in the middle is a servant-hearted young lady. My son Sam, the taller of the two, he cries if he sees a dog limping. He's got one of the sweetest tender hearts ever. And my son Isaac is a delightful young man who just loves people. He says all the time, I say, Isaac, what do you want to do today? And he says, I just want to be with our family. That's what he says. Uh, but So I come as a, as a husband and as a father as well, trying to work out these things that I preach. 
I have such a profound sense of being in this with all of you. Working these things out as a neighbor and as a, a colleague and as a son still and a, a, a friend to, to many people. So this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, if you turn there in your Bibles, I am so eager to dive into this with you because God is going to meet us in his word. I believe in the power of the living word of God. The Holy Spirit who inspired this word is the same Holy Spirit who's present with us now. And if you're someone who's trusted Christ for forgiveness of sins and are a new creature in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead has taken residence in the life of a, a new born-again believer. And that's what lives in us. And He's at work. The Spirit's at work. The one who inspired this word illuminating our minds and transforming us through his word i have seen the word of god as powerful and active as the spirit uses us to make us different than when we walked in i hope when you come to church you come eagerly expecting god to change you so that when you walk out you're not the same person you were when you walked in we're just going to be here a few minutes but god is able to use a few minutes when we dig into his word that way He's able to use his word powerfully. I've seen him do this in my life and the lives of thousands of people when we open the word together and we're changed. I hope you come expecting that. I hope you don't come just expecting a few more notes in your notebook or a couple of interesting things you learn, but that you come eager for God to work. He's alive. He's here. He's present with all of us. And so let's go to his word expectantly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words written to this weary church. 2,000 years ago, in many ways, is different than we are as possible, but in the most important ways, no different. Human beings made in your image, tragically fallen, redeemed by Christ and struggling on the path of following Him. Lord, would You help us this morning to be changed by Your Word. Help us to believe as we go to it now in the power of Your Word and the Spirit's work in the preaching of the Word. Lord, thank You for this church. Thank You for the blessing it's been, the encouragement it's been, the edifying experience it's been to just be part of this fellowship for a couple of days. Lord, thank you for the joy of being your children. Help us now as we go to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, this whole book is written to persecuted, weary, struggling believers. Can anybody relate to that? I, I'm actually encouraged because of how often I'm weary and struggling to just keep going in the Christian faith. I'm encouraged by how often the Bible basic message to his people is this keep going think of all even the phrases maybe you're familiar with that the bible teaches press on to the upward call in christ jesus fight the good fight of faith guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you press on all these terms that assume there's plenty of temptation to quit to throw in the towel, to wonder if it's all worth it. And over and over again, the Bible says, keep going in the Christian race because I promise you it'll be worth it. 
I promise you it'll be hard. There's no doubt about that. But I promise you it'll be worth it. And we need to realize that there's comfort in this and that we're all in this together. And even if you're in a phase of your Christian life right now where you're just cruising, it's not hard. You're not feeling the challenges. It's a little hard for me to believe, if you're being honest with yourself, that there aren't battles within and from without in your Christian life. But let's just know going in, it's hard. I know that's not what people tend to want to tell you when you become a Christian. But please realize that being a disciple of Jesus in some ways makes your life harder than it was before. I know you don't hear that message much in our contemporary culture that just wants to sell you on this Christian thing. I have a neighbor, he's not a Christian, but he, he loves Christians. He does. He'll come over and he'll say, Eric, I'm so thankful for you guys. You're keeping our whole society together. If it weren't for you guys, we, it'd be more chaotic than it is. Keep up the good work, man. Now, he's not personally interested but and he'll even, he's a salesman, a really good one, and he'll come over and he'll say, Herrick, I was thinking of a great angle you could use with your students at Biola or the people at your church for get them, for, to get them to commit even more. Try this one on them. And he does. He, he gives me advice on how to, how to sell the Christian faith more. Love this guy. And, and, he, and we've had amazing talks. And, and this, 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 this man, I just, I just love talking to him. But he recognizes the value of this life that we live. But what you need to know is when Jesus invites you to be in relationship with him, he invites you to come and die. Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. He said, in my kingdom, the first is last and the last is first. In my kingdom, the greatest is the, king, the, the servant of all, the foot washer. It's beautiful to see people serve in this church this weekend humbly serving they, they get that kingdom upside down reality and so so the christian life is hard and if it's not for you i wonder how you're actually running and we'll get to that but but this is written to persecuted believers these are jewish christians they were they were they were jews and they came to the realization that jesus was the messiah the true Messiah. And for most of them, it meant forfeiting their earthly families. Forfeiting, now we're seeing in Hebrews, their even material prosperity. So their homes are being ransacked. We don't seem to have a martyr in this church yet, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be long. I taught at a seminary in India. And my first day, I became aware that in this seminary, there were only about 30 students in this seminary, but they told me that in the past five years, there had been eight graduates who were martyred. Imagine how that would affect your seminary experience, your classroom experience. Looking around your classes, thinking, you know what? Odds are one or two of us is going to die for our faith in the next few years. Boy, would that change the dynamic of gathering? It would, it, it would change the dynamic of viewing church as something you go and then fill out a Yelp evaluation of, which people do. Don't ever read those. They're terrible. The parking was good. I was greeted on the way. It's, it's just chilling <laughs> the way we view church, right? Seats are comfortable. You all have yourselves to blame if your seats aren't comfortable now, right? 
Uh, uh, but it's just, imagine, if, if we looked around and said it's likely that in the next few years, three or four of us are going to be martyred. Think about how that would change the whole dynamic. Well, that's how Christians live for most of our history. We don't have a category for that. You know, there's a... a, a a Roman Catholic cardinal in Chicago, and he said the way persecution against Christians is growing around the world, and now uh, oppression of Christians. He didn't use persecution for for American Christians, but he said the oppression of American Christians is growing so quickly. He said, "I think I'm going to be the last person in my position to die in my own bed." He said, "I think my successor is going to die in prison." And I think his successor will die a martyr. I look at you young people and I think you are going to see a level of opposition to your Christian faith that I never saw in my lifetime. When I'm dead and in the grave, I think you're going to be fighting battles that, that we can't imagine are coming. I heard somebody say, when I was a kid, being a good Christian could get you a job. Today, it could cost you your job. Things have changed very rapidly. We need to be ready. We need to be able to relate to these Jewish believers who are getting all kinds of persecution now and develop a mentality that says we want to be a church that when persecution really comes, we're not going to lose anybody because we're not here because of facilities or comfort or any of these things. I was looking at some of your values on, on the website. and Just great values. It's not about all the externals. I often get asked, hey, Eric, how are things going at the church? And I often know what people are asking. What are your facilities like? How many people are you running on a Sunday? What's the budget? You meet in budget? Is it a big budget? You have lots of impressive programs. All these really pretty superficial evaluations of, of success. And I'll start to answer questions like that, that this way now. Yeah, I think it's going really well because people are dying with hope and faith. People are dealing with sin and even church discipline in a redemptive way. People are laying down their lives for each other. Husbands are loving and leading their families like Jesus. See, those are the sorts of things we need to be looking for. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to these people and to us to encourage us to keep going because it'll all be worth it. To instruct them, to inspire them, to encourage them, and most of all, to help them to see Jesus for who He is. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 1. After listing this amazing hall of faith, these believers who've come before, who have demonstrated a faithful life, in chapter 11, he says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like them, right? The ones we just heard about. Let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So what do we learn in this passage about continuing the Christian life? These are survival skills for this marathon that is the Christian life that's filled with all sorts of weariness and difficulty and persecution and struggles and doubt and faith weakness and frailty. What are we learning? The first thing we're learning, I hope you see, is that we are to run leaning on the great cloud of witnesses. This is a beautiful image This great cloud of witnesses, it's large and it's like a cloud that envelops us. There's no lack of example for us to follow, not just with Jesus at the head of the line, but all those following in his footsteps. We have 2,000 years of church history, and as we have listed here, we have all of the history of God's people in the old covenant that he lists in chapter 11, this amazing hall of faith. We have lots of examples. Maybe you don't have great examples in your nuclear family, but we have examples throughout the history of the church of faithful believers who are willing to lay it all on the line to follow Jesus. And he says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, keep going. Run the race with perseverance. Keep going. This word witness is a great word. It's, it's martus. It's, we eventually get the word martyr from it. It's anyone, anything but a passive spectator. It's someone who has run the race and gone through what we're going through ahead of us who couldn't be more sympathetic to what we're battling. It's a sympathetic testifier. It's someone who gets it. It's not passive spectators. It's people who have run this race and know the battle scars better than you do. And they're cheering you on. Their examples are encouraging you. Remember I went to D.C. one time and I went to the Vietnam Memorial. I like to go to places like that as the sun's coming up before any tourists are there. Even though I am a tourist when I go to places like that. Because I find tourists very distracting, distracting in sacred places. So I went to the Vietnam Memorial and I found some people with my last name. I don't think they're part of my family, but that was sobering to see. And then, and then I, I was standing just taking it all in. I was all alone as the sun was coming up. And a man came running along who was obviously in the military. You know how you can just tell? Sometimes people think I was in the military and I say, no, I just played football. A lot of similarities. Um, but this man came running by, really fit. He was, he was at the time, I was, I was younger, but he was, he was actually probably my age at the time. It was, it was when I was in my 20s. And, and he, he, he ran by me and then he got to a particular place on the wall and he stopped And he stood at attention. And he looked at a name on that wall. And he snapped a salute. Kept running. In that moment, I lost it. And I realized as meaningful, as sobering as that experience of the Vietnam Memorial was to me, that man was a sympathetic witness. A sympathetic testifier no doubt probably having fought in Vietnam himself knowing people who were on that wall personally and that sort of sympathetic testifying is what we have here do you realize the legacy we're a part of Christianity didn't start when you became a Christian 
It didn't start with the Gaithers. It, it, it didn't start with your family history becoming Christian. It started a long time ago. Like, I'd say in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> When God relationship with human beings who are working this thing out and we have this amazing history to look to. And you know what? The great cloud of witnesses is not just believers who've come and gone, but believers right now. Read missionary biographies. Read biographies of Christians who are willing to walk faithfully. It's so powerfully encouraging to do that. And it's not just those in the past and those in books. The great cloud of witnesses in a very powerful and real way needs to be the people in your life. I mean, look around. I've already gotten to know some people in this congregation well enough to know that they're sympathetic testifiers worthy of looking to. You'll be encouraged by their faith, by their witness, by their example. And it's happening at this church. There's discipleship happening. Older investing in younger. We all need sympathetic testifiers in our lives. The Christian life was never intended to be run by yourself. It's a profoundly interdependent reality. We need each other. We desperately need each other. That's why you're here on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping or getting ready for the game or doing housework or yard work or whatever else you could be doing. You're here because you knew you needed to gather. You knew you need each other. I hope that's at least pretty evident to you, that there's a sign of humility in your mere presence here and you're acknowledging, I need God's people or I will be like a coal taken out of the fire that will die out in no time. I'm not, I'm not gathered with the others. So we need to run leaning on the great cloud of witnesses in the context and support and encouragement and correction of the great cloud of witnesses. So I want to ask you, who are the fellow testifiers in your life? Not just from the past, but now. Every one of us should have believers further down the road than we are that we look to to encourage us, that we open up with and, and talk about our struggles and our needs. Even as a preacher, I, we have three services typically at our church. After the 8 a.m. service, Ruth Dix is all, always there. She's, she's a physician, she's a, a missionary in the Congo for 40 years, and she's in our church now, she's in her 80s. And after the 8 a.m. service, I will usually find Ruth at some point, and I will say, Ruth, how did I do? And she'll say, oh, Eric, you really skipped over a really important point there. She usually has something for me, or please emphasize that a little bit more. You did fine, honey, but come on. And, and I, Ruth, is, is, she's gone ahead of me. I have, I have people, I collect as many people as resources in my life. I need friends to go to and say, man, I've been battling sin, Dave, my good friend Dave. Pray for me. We need sympathetic testifiers in our lives. Who are yours that you're looking to and who are yours that are looking to you? Not by accident, but intentionally. We need discipleship being done intentionally in the church and I love to see it happening here. Second thing is run light. We run leaning on the great cloud of witnesses. The second thing is we run light, free of weights and sin. It says throw off the weights or the hindrances and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance. So I want you to notice that 
we have things in our lives that will inhibit our running, our growth, our process, our progress. And it's not just sin. We'll get to that. But before we think about the way sin slows us down, inhibits us, gets us down detours, it's not just sin. It's things we may consider morally neutral. Nothing wrong with them. The Bible doesn't forbid them. But they certainly don't help us run. I think that's a very important distinction here. It's easy to slip in in the Christian life to a sort of uh, what's wrong with it mentality. This is a good way to spend my time or my money or my recreation or my entertainment or my investments or my years or whatever it is. We can slip in, oh, is there anything wrong with this? What a wrong way to live. A, is there anything wrong with this mentality? No, we've got to have a mentality that says, what's the best thing? What's the best way? Not just, is this bad? I mean, imagine if you treated your car that way. Gee, I wonder how much water I could put in my gas tank before it stalls. Nothing wrong with putting water in. It can actually run with some water in there, but I want to get as close as I can to running my car on partial water before it stalls. Or our diets, right, are, are that. I love donuts. I, love, I could have a donut chaser after every meal. I just love donuts. You know, I do. I just all kinds of donuts. Maple buttermilk bar is by far the best, right? So, but, but I've, I've got to say, okay, my love for donuts needs to be in, in its proper perspective, I can't say, well, there's nothing sinful about eating donuts. No. I suppose at some point there could be. Yeah, but, but if it's gluttony, but, but I, I don't want to have a steady diet of donuts. And so what do we do with our decisions? And we, we talked to the Purity Conference this weekend. My, is this important here? Yeah, I'll have guys come to me who are in a dating relationship and they'll say, hey, Eric, how, how far is too far with my girlfriend? You know what I say? I actually lean forward and I say, bruh, wrong question. That is the completely wrong. If you came to me and asked to date one of my daughters and said, and by the way, what do you consider too far? You ain't dating my daughter. That is a completely wrong question. The, qu the right questions are, how can I date this woman in a way, this, this girl in a way where it's the best way? Not how close to the line can I get, but what's the best way to be edifying and encouraging and bless her? And, and then I'll say this. Hey, you know, it's likely that you're going to break up with this woman. That's the odds. I'm just telling you. Or she's going to break up with you. This thing's probably not going to last at your age, I'll say. And so given that, and even if it, it does, it doesn't matter. Given that she's not your wife yet, how about... You imagine right now that your future wife is dating someone else right now. And imagine you got to have lunch with that guy. And he gave you the ability to lay out what the parameters of that relationship should look like. Now just put yourself in his place and you think about the parameters you would want someone to have with your wife right now when he's dating her. So what I say is, here's your goal. Not how far is too far, but... Here's your goal, that when this relationship ends and she ends up marrying somebody else, that you get invited to the wedding. 
That should be your goal. That the woman you're dating right now, you date her in a way where when she gets married, you get invited to the wedding. And at the wedding reception, here should be your goal. Her new husband should come over to you and say, thank you for dating my new wife. She's more like Jesus because you hung out with her. She's more ready to be a good wife. She's not carrying all kinds of baggage into our marriage because she dated you. And then her father comes over and says the same thing. What? Guys laugh at me when I say that. Why do they laugh? They shouldn't. That's a mentality that doesn't just say how far is too far, but what's the very best? What's the very best way to invest in relationships and dating and, and marriages and parenting and our recreation choices and our entertainment choices and our monetary investments and all the things we do? What's the very best way? How will God most be glorified, most honored? You don't want to go through life wearing a giant parka coat trying to run the 100 meters. Lay aside the weight that slows us down and the sin that easily entangles. One of the biggest problems we have is we start to do well for a little while and we're th we think we're way stronger than we really are. The Bible says that sin easily entangles like vines that get wrapped all around us. Easily entangles. It creeps up. And before we know it, we're overtaken by these vines these vines we get blindsided by it because we're not living as if we're in a war we are we're in a spiritual war every day of our lives and we need to see it as that and go to war when we wake up in the morning i wake up and i say pride i know you're after me today lust you're after me today this, uh, irritability you're after me today there's some sins that go after me and i have to go to war with them because they easily entangle if we let up at all. Sin easily entangles. I have a friend who was at a pastor's conference. And Randy had a roommate randomly assigned to him. It wasn't random from God's perspective. And they got to know each other, had dinner, and talked niceties. And they're at this pastor's conference. And as they're going to sleep, Randy's about to sleep. And the guy, this new friend he had made, said, Hey, Randy, yeah, i got to tell you something. I was signed up to this pastor's conference last year. But last Sunday was my last Sunday as a pastor because I fell into an immoral relationship. And I decided to come to the conference anyway. And Randy said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then there was this long pause, and this guy said, Hey, Randy, guard your thoughts. Every act of adultery begins with one thought guard your thoughts randy sin easily entangles we need to go to war with sin in our lives by the spirit's power grounded in the gospel because it easily entangles so we run leaning on the great cloud of witnesses we run light free of encumbrances and sin three we run long with patient endurance you know god loves history He's been keeping it going for thousands and thousands of years. It's just amazing. He loves history. He loves the process with all its messiness. He loves the process even with the sin that we battle constantly. He loves 
the process. And every time we encounter difficulty in our lives, we need to say, God has this on our plates and He wants us to grow, not in spite of this, but in this. We need to run long with patient endurance. He's the God of history. Listen to Galatians 6.9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Let's keep going. Let's have patient endurance. Let's not be easily discouraged. Let's know it's a long and arduous race. And finally, and most important, we're to run looking to Jesus. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Joy on the way to the cross. That's Jesus despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we run looking to Jesus. Yes, we draw encouragement from the other runners, from the sympathetic testifiers, but we don't fix our eyes on them. We fix our eyes on the one they have their eyes fixed on, which is Jesus. If we look to our examples, which we should have on a human level, they'll always fail us. They'll always disappoint us. Jesus is the only one who never disappoints. He came for the joy set before Him to lay down His life for us so we could be forgiven and have a restored relationship with God through Him. Jesus is the ultimate object of our faith, of our gaze. He is the one who ran the race ahead of us successfully and the one we ultimately follow. He'll never disappoint you. He's the author, the perfecter, and He endured with joy. So, we're to run leaning and light and long and looking. And I I just want to exhort you and encourage you and bless you this morning with this word from God's word. I know that as I stand before a group this size, We've got all kinds of different situations in the race. Some of you are just sprinting full steam ahead, and that's obvious. Keep going. Keep going. Some of you are really struggling. This COVID time, the turmoil in our society, has really started to discourage you. Maybe spending way too much time on social media or media in general. Maybe you need to fast from that. And, and, and you're struggling for one reason or another. You're weak, you're battling, you're struggling. Some of you on this track of the Christian race, you're running in the wrong direction. You're still here. Even though you, you maybe have a secret life that you're following in and you're running in a really bad and wrong direction. Whatever describes you in the Christian race this morning, I want you to know there's hope There's encouragement, and in Christ, there's everything you'll ever need to run victoriously and with patient endurance. And we need need to be willing to find help from those around us. 1992, Los Angeles, Barcelona Olympics. 92, Barcelona, doesn't matter. Uh, Derek Redman, the British record holder in the 400, was favored to win a medal in the Olympics in 1992. And he had been battling a hamstring injury, but it had seemed like it was fine by the Olympics. But as the final, it was a semifinal of the 400 meters, Derek Redmond is running a phenomenal race. 
And about halfway through the race, his hamstring just popped. And he fell down and started to weep that what he had worked for his whole life had just come crashing down. And everybody was crestfallen and, and, and saw him on the track, but then they couldn't believe what happened. He got up. And he started to limp and at times hop because he was going to finish this race. And it was painful to watch because you could tell how painful his hamstring tear was. But he was going to finish the race. He had over 200 meters to go and he was not going to not finish in the Olympics. But as the excruciating pain kept slowing him down where, where he's, he's limping just painfully. And everybody's just dying with him as this is happening. An older gentleman came out of the stands. He climbed over the rails and started to come onto the track. And one of the attendants came over and said, Sir, you can't go on the track. And this large man pushed this attendant out of the way. So he gets on his radio, starting to just call in the reinforcements. And two more guys tried to stop this man from getting to Derek Redmond on the track. And he waved them off or pushed them off and got to him. And he went over and he took Derek Redmond's arm and he put it over his shoulders and started to help him with his other arm around his waist down the track. Another uh, official came over and grabbed this man's arm and said, sir, you need to get off the track. And he said, no, I don't because this boy's my son. And he continued down the track. And, and that's Derek Redmond and his father. This is one of the most memorable moments in all the modern Olympics. And it's an amazing moment. And he did. He brought him the rest of the way. And here's what you need to know. When Derek Redmond and his father crossed the finish line, I mean, the winners had crossed minutes before. But when Derek Redmond and his father crossed the finish line, there was the most raucous standing ovation that had probably happened in the entire Olympic Games that year. Because everybody in the stands knew they were watching something way more significant than just really fast people running fast. The loser the worst time ever, well, it, he was disqualified because his dad helped him, but that didn't really matter, did it? The, the worst time ever, you could imagine, was more important and significant than any other thing that happened in those Olympics. Why? Because everybody just saw life that is a journey displayed before them. And what everybody was realizing, what, is that life is not about finishing first or fastest or impressively. It's about finishing with the challenges that have been brought to your life, with all the help you can possibly find along the way in finishing well. Every one of us is going to finish limping, scarred, wounded, struggling, things we would regret. 
But it's not about finishing the same as anybody else. It's not about finishing victoriously in a way the world would see as impressive. It's about finishing with our eyes fixed on Jesus who will be there at the finish line to meet us with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Christian race that although arduous, is worth it. Lord, thank you for this precious uh, church family here at Grace. And I pray, Lord, your great blessing on them. I pray for the young people as they think about the lives ahead of them, that they would know life is brief. And we need to redeem the time for the days are evil and increasingly so. I pray for those of us here who are well down the road, that we would finish well, that we wouldn't rest on our laurels or assume we're going to be fine even tomorrow, but we would continue to run, leaning on the great cloud of witnesses, light free of encumbrances and sin, long with patient endurance, and most of all, with our eyes looking to Jesus, the only one worth our faith and our worship in our very lives. And we pray this in His mighty and matchless and holy name. Amen.